0: Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello again, this is Ross Ingalls. If you asked us to pick the debate that gets heated most quickly, it's parking. Stand up for the proposals to replace curbside parking with transit lanes or bike paths, and you'll pretty quickly get resistance from people who love their cars and really object to being told they can't park them where and when they want. So how do we make the debate around parking less polarizing and more productive? For the answers we turned to Dr Tim Welch a senior lecturer at Auckland University's School of Architecture and Planning. Tim's been a very public advocate around cycling infrastructure, parking and related issues. Tim, welcome to this climate business. Let's start with this question. Why is parking so contentious in New Zealand today?
1: Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, it is a really contentious issue. And one thing is just the amount of cars that we have. So, there are 837 cars for every 1,000 people in New Zealand. Uh, So, that's a massive number of cars. That's over 3.5 million light vehicles that are registered, uh, that are driven on a regular basis. So, we have a ton of cars. Uh, And Cars spend most of their lives sitting around parked and 95% of their lives are spent idle sitting and waiting for their driver uh, to take over. Uh, so not only do we have a lot of cars, but we have a lot of cars sitting around. Uh, we also have a lot of parking. Uh, for decades, we've had minimum parking requirements. So if you build a building, if you build a shopping center, or an apartment complex, the uh, By prescription, you were told the number of spaces you had to provide based on the type of building you had and the square footage or the expected occupancy, et cetera, et cetera. So we were building massive quantities. And, you know, that number became somewhat uncoupled from the reality of how much parking we really needed. Uh, The way that this was done was often uh, you'd send uh, sometimes an intern or a student out uh, to spend their day at one location. Uh, clicking the number of cars that would come into something that looked similar, so kind of a reference building. And we would just take that number, maybe we'd do one more observation, and we would use that as our guide for how many parking spaces would be required. And so oftentimes that didn't really reflect the demand or it reflected the peak demand, but not the demand for cars all the time. So we started to proliferate the number of parking spaces. And then we added on parking for free. Or fairly cheap to every curb of every road we built. Uh, and we have 96,000 kilometers of road in New Zealand. So that's a lot of parking, also. Uh, and so it just became uh, this massive quantity of demand because of all the cars we had and a huge amount of supply. And it became part of our everyday lives to drive, expect easy parking, and fairly free parking. And you know, I'd make it kind of analogous to what if everybody in New Zealand, every morning they woke up and they had free two gallon or two liter jug of milk at their doorstep. Um and then one day someone said, Uh, you know what? Maybe it should be one liter jugs and maybe we should charge a little bit for that. I mean you'd be enraged also if something you viewed as Ubiquitous and free was suddenly suggested to be taken away from you, uh, so it really can get people's uh, ire if we start to suggest that maybe we reduce something that's that's viewed as as a free and readily available public good.
0: Mm, okay, well that uh, I had wondered about this because it feels like um, that those who argue against reallocating road space to public and active transport modes. Um, frequently express a sense of deprivation, the idea that they're losing something they're entitled to. What's your take on that? Well, there is a very
1: real perception that roads are paid for by drivers and that they should be dedicated solely to the use of cars or other motorized vehicles. The reality is that those perceptions are almost completely wrong. Uh, They are paid for, to some degree, uh, by drivers uh, through uh, petrol taxes and road user charges. But for the local road, that's also subsidized partially by rates that everybody pays. So, it's not just the driver paying for that road space. And the amount of space that's occupied by people who are not in a car is so small that the rates kind of do cover the amount of space that we might want to allocate to them. Uh, and you know, if we go back and take a historical look at what roads used to be, roads started out as as a way for people uh, in wagons, in uh, you know, in trams, in public transportation, and on bikes to get around a city. It was later that cars came in, and about a hundred years ago, uh, working with the Automobile Association, drivers actually started to push cars. Out, I push cyclists out of the road. Um, so it was really the Automobile Association in the 1930s that devised the idea of bike lanes to put cyclists out of the car lanes, or what were perceived at the time as car lanes, uh, in And make it safer for the driver to get around the city and not have to worry about where a cyclist might be in the road. It was also the Automobile Association that pushed for all cyclists to have a red reflector on the back of their bikes and suggested that they should have to paint a white stripe on their rear fender to really make them very visible. But that wasn't for the safety of the cyclist. It was for the comfort of the driver and for the Automobile Association to assure drivers that they weren't going to hit a Cyclists, so they could get more drivers on the road, Uh, and it was it's kind of the same story in many countries. In the U.S., it was cyclists who kind of sealed their own fate when they pushed for paved roads or sealed roads, so that they could get over those uh, dirt roads a lot easier. And seeing that space, drivers kind of took over and and pushed uh, cyclists and cars, cyclists and and pedestrians to the side of the road. So, uh, you know, it's historically has not been a car space, uh, but only since cars really started to take over uh, did we see that space being owned by the driver rather than everybody in the city. Right.
0: So, it used to be very different. Um, Is there a sense in which the shift towards active and public transport modes is happening anyway and that the public debate around parking in particular doesn't actually matter that much? Well, I
1: think it matters. I mean, if we look at how many people actually go by active modes or by public transportation it's still a pretty low number. So if we look across New Zealand, the historically for the last forty years, uh, bike mode share has been one percent of all of all trips. Uh, public transportation has been three percent of all trips and walking is roughly sixteen percent. So added up that's twenty percent, which means eighty percent of trips are still taken inside of a car. And so even with a massive shift towards modes outside of the car, we're still going to need a lot of buy-in from drivers. So that's where it's going to have to start. We're going to have to convince drivers that they don't need as much parking as as they already have, uh that it's a good idea to pay for parking and that really getting more cyclists into safe spaces on the road and Bus lanes on the road will benefit drivers ultimately with with uh, faster um, roads with less queuing um, and with you know fewer crashes all sorts of different benefits to the driver uh, so it's not just a car uh, or not just a bike benefit it, it can mm. benefit drivers as well
0: mm. um the policy direction though does seem to be pretty clear doesn't it like um uh, uh Yesterday, New Zealand released its national emissions reduction plan. Um, That kind of suggests that uh, parking is going to be deprioritized. In fact, the use of private cars generally is going to be deprioritized. Is is that where it goes over time? Uh, I don't quite see it that way. So what I
1: saw in the emission reduction plan was a concerted effort to keep people in their cars, but to switch what powers those cars? So moving them to electric vehicles, uh, I think, and I mean, there may be a shift over time towards something that is uh, more a shared space, uh, so less uh, emphasis on individual ownership of a vehicle and greater pools of shared transportation. Uh, we've been pushing for that for decades. Uh, it hasn't really taken on. I mean, there's been, you know, there was things like Uber or Ola or others uh, that. We thought would be that space that would be shared ownership models. Uh, They turned out to be mostly just taxis, Um, and so I I mean we we saw hints that there may be some emphasis on walking and cycling. the The interesting thing about the ERP is if you look at kind of their graphs of emission reduction, where they think the biggest will come from in transportation, it's actually walking, cycling, and public transportation use uh, that is over and beyond uh individual, you know, switch individual switching to electric vehicles. Uh that's a smaller share, even though it gets a much larger portion of what's budgeted for, for climate change. So it can have a bigger impact. Uh but I don't see the government going out and purposely moving people out of cars and, and into
0: other modes. Right. So not that revolutionary then? <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Mm. We have time, but we'll see. Right. So, New Zealand is, is is not on its own in this debate. It's been had before, or is being had, uh, in in other countries. What do we learn from the experience in, say, the United States about uh, shifting away from the focus on parking?
1: Well, I, unfortunately, I don't think the United States is, uh, you know, a great example. There are. Emphasis in New York, places where they've reduced uh, car prioritization on certain roads, uh, but there are cities around the world uh, that have kind of been, see, for lack of a better term, car dominated for many decades and are starting to turn the tide. Uh, so you know, if we look at Paris, uh, it it's very car dominated. It's it's had uh you know traffic problems for. For a long time, um, and Mayor uh, and Hidalgo has done uh, a lot of work trying to change the prioritization the funding there uh, to push for more bike lanes to reduce vehicles in cities. Uh, London has been working on that for a long time with congestion charges and beefing up public transportation. Um, if you look at countries, uh, cities like Oslo, uh, which recorded zero pedestrian or vehicle fatalities uh, for an entire year, they did that by slowing down cars, but also by getting fewer people uh, in the city in cars, so, so shifting to other modes. Uh, so, there are a number of cities that show us um, the way we can go, the directions we can go and what we can achieve, uh, but it takes a lot of work getting there and, and
0: changing our policies to mm. get to that point. So, the way, the way you portray it, it sounds like we're asking to change an entire culture. It's not just town planning. Um,
1: I mean, it's it is a multi-sectoral approach. Uh, Yeah, it's not just changing, um, you know, a few parking spaces here and there, uh, but it's making a city possible to traverse by. By bike or by public transportation. And we have kind of this idea of a cultural war against cars that somebody might be there to take your car from you one morning. Uh, But that's really not what the goal of, and I'll put in air quotes, urbanists is. Um, The goal is to make the other modes so attractive that a person would want to get out of their car or leave it behind one or two days a week or more. Um, So we're not trying to. Or rip that car out of that steering wheel out of your hands, uh, but rather um, make it possible to use another mode if that's what you'd like to do.
0: Mm. Okay, so what I'd like to do is um, invite you to offer the um, the advocate's guide to winning the barbecue debate about parking, um, and let's do this in 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 um, three bites. Um, could you perhaps volunteer uh, your top three data points that you? draw on when you're advocating for reallocating parking space. What
1: would what would be your first one? So the first one would really be uh, the benefit to drivers from getting more space on the road for other modes. And I kind of mentioned that earlier, but... The fewer cars that are on the road, uh, and that's achieved by having protected bike lanes for people who would like to bike but are a little afraid to under our current infrastructure, um, have the ability to leave behind that car and get in a bike or public transportation that gets closer to people's homes or their place of work. So that's a real option and that's maybe cheaper and more affordable for everybody. Um, all of that takes one more person off the road, and one less car on the road is is a faster commute. Um, so, really, all of these things benefit the driver just as much as they do cyclists and public transportation users.
0: Is there a rule of thumb, a measure that you can apply to that benefit to the driver?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of different measures. Um, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't have a uh, you know a specific number to attach to it. Mm-hmm. Um, It's you know the it's really context sensitive, right? It depends Mm -hmm. on what street uh, we provide cycle lanes or public transportation on. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a phenomenon that's been observed in many places. In fact, um, there's a lot of studies that have shown how good it is to be a driver in places like Copenhagen or Amsterdam, Mm -hmm. where cycles, bicycling, is over twenty to thirty percent of all bike trips. Um, The cars drive. Uh, a lot quicker. Uh, the commutes are a lot calmer, uh, and and it's actually a much more pleasurable place to drive than places that have totally ignored those other modes. Righto. Point number two. Uh, so another point, and this is one that you know has come up recently, is the idea that. Uh, without parking, local businesses are are going to be in danger, or they'll lose their their patronage. Oh yes! And, <laughs> yeah. I mean it's 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 one that's you know it's the first thing that's on the news in the evening every time parking is talked about, or closing down a street to build light rail or a cycle lane. But the reality is that studies have shown over and over that typically four to five percent of local business. Uh, Patrons are driving to those stores, which means 95% of the rest of the business comes from people on foot or public transportation or by bike. Um, And studies have also shown that the people who arrive by these other modes than car spend more and go to the shops more often. So, really, parking is not the boon to local businesses uh, that it seems like it is. A lot of business owners. have you know that haven't realized this trend uh, would suffer from what we call windshield bias, which is the idea that we kind of think everybody travels by the mode in which we most commonly travel uh, so a lot of shop owners don't live that close to their local shops for various reasons, and so they just assume their customers don't either. but the reality is that uh, a significant percentage um, somewhere close to half of most uh, local shop patrons live within a kilometer of two or two of that shop, uh, so they get a lot more l- very local business uh, than they may anticipate. Simply because they're often driving to their own business.
0: Right. So let me check that last point, Tim. Does uh, it, it, it does the research show that you take parking away and local businesses can do more business? That's typically what we've
1: also seen in, in a lot of studies, and some New Zealand studies as well, have shown that um, you know, there's, there's a bit of a lag because there's construction and people have to get used to it. But once people are used to the configuration of the road, uh, a new design, uh, most businesses find that they have higher sales um, and greater patronage as a result of reduced parking.
0: That one is that one is is uh, intriguing. So, uh, what's the third point, Tim? Well, the third one, um, and I don't know if
1: you'll win over a lot of drivers this way, is that just the ubiquity and availability of cheaper free parking induces a lot of bad driving behavior, uh, and when we're trying to do things like address climate change, this is really problematic. So, the expectation that at your destination there'll be readily available parking or free parking uh, will typically induce somebody to make a car trip over some other mode. They may be able to take a bike there, they may be able to take public transportation, but just the fact that they know they'll have an easy time finding a free parking space. Uh, will encourage them to make the decision to drive rather than use these other modes. And typically at the destination end, what happens especially during peak hours is if there is a charge for some of the parking or if the parking spaces aren't readily available, people will cruise for spaces. And this is some of the the worst emissions producing and pollution producing travel behavior. So they drive slowly around the block and then another block um, or through a car park, just searching for that available space that's really close. Uh, they may be able to park a couple blocks away and and be done with it and walk in. Uh, but for something happens when we get in a car and we start to lose some rationality and we just keep searching for that uh, very close spot. Uh, and and that kind of behavior combined with just driving to every destination results in a lot of emissions that could easily be reduced. Uh, so that availability um, causes a lot of this travel. So having less parking, uh, though, you know, begrudgingly at first will actually result in much uh, more efficient travel behavior over the long run.
0: Tim, last question is, is there, you make a very compelling case and you, and you can back it up with the research. uh, but is is there a sense in which the argument's to, people are simply not going to be persuaded. They're so tied to their cars that that, that, uh, that they're never going to be happy with the idea that they can't park outside the local fish and chip shop.
1: Yeah, I mean, everybody has their own use case. Uh, so, anytime you suggest, oh, maybe you could take a bike, maybe you could use public transportation, well, that's the day that they're transporting a piano. Uh, they have you know, seven passengers they need to get in their SUV, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We plan for the peak. Uh, so that's why all our cities are kind of configured to get you quickly to the CBD and back out again rather than from suburb to suburb it's why we buy big cars because of that one time that we might have a guest visiting and we need to transport them or help a friend move um, and so everybody comes up with a scenario where we can't live without our cars uh, and that's fine if you want to drive everywhere that's that's really okay uh, the goal of urban planning and of reducing parking is to provide options for the people who aren't as married to their car right who can see a life outside of driving uh, and so the more options we provide for those people the more availability of of spaces uh, that aren't dominated by cars uh, the better it is for everybody um, and so I you know, It's totally fine. If there's a lot of people who want to keep their car, it's the rest of the people that we're really trying to give options to. Excellent.
0: Dr. Timothy Welsh, thank you very much for joining us, Climate Business. Thank you, It's my pleasure. This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us.